chapter 23. Let's turn there, please. Scott's not leaving us. He's going to the Spanish service. (laughs) He's been with us already through two other services. It's a blessing. Genesis 23. It has been a joy to study the life of Abraham. We've talked a lot about Abraham. We've learned a lot about him. We've learned a lot about faith by looking at his life. We've learned about ourselves because we've learned a lot about the struggles that Abraham went through, which are very similar to the struggles that we go through all the time. The struggles dealing with the issues of faith and, and, and trust, the issues of obedience and, and whatnot. And we've learned all of that in just looking at this life of this man called Abraham. But from time to time, we've looked at the life of Sarah, too, but not much. We, we haven't seen a whole lot about Sarah Oh, we've seen some struggles between Abraham and Sarah from time to time. But today we're going to learn a little bit about Sarah's life as we focus upon her death. Consider the first two verses of this chapter. It says, And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. Uh, When you translate from King James to regular English, (laughs) that's 127 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. She lived 127 years. And Sarah died. She died in Kiryat Ha'arba, which, as it says, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Let me tell you a little story. Listen very carefully to the story. Don't want you to miss the impetus of it. A couple from Minneapolis decided to go to Florida for a long weekend to thaw out during one particularly icy winter. Because both had jobs, they had difficulty coordinating their travel schedules. It was decided that the husband would fly to Florida on a Thursday and his wife would follow him the next day. Upon arriving as planned, the husband checked into the hotel. There he decided to open his laptop and send his wife an email back in Minneapolis. However, he accidentally left off one letter in her email address and sent the email without realizing his error. Now, in Houston, Texas, a widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He was a minister of many years who had been called home to glory following a heart attack. The widow checked her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. And upon reading the first message, she fainted and fell to the floor. And the widow's son rushed into the room and found his mother on the floor. And he looked up and he saw the computer screen. And this is what it said on the screen. To my loving wife, from your departed husband. Subject, I've arrived. And here's the message. 
Here's the message. I've just arrived and have been checked in. I've seen that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. That, of course, that, of course, is not a true story, I hope. I really hope that's not a true story. But Sarah's life, her life story truly was a reality, as was Abraham's. His life, his journey, his feats of heroism, his, his bouts with cowardice. And his passionate faith in God. They were all real. But so was his grief. So was his grief. How real is our grief at the loss of someone so close to us? It makes you wonder whether this test in the life of Abraham was even tougher than the previous test in having to obey God to sacrifice Isaac. Can you imagine it in simple terms that that, uh, God says to Abraham one day, He says, give up your son to me. And then on another day, not many years later, oh, Abraham... Give up your wife to me too. But Abraham had a wife who lived in faith and died in faith. And folks, that's something that we need to understand clearly today. We need to live in faith and to die in faith. It's interesting that Sarah is the only woman in the scriptures whose age at death is recorded. The only one. No other woman. It is not said of any other woman what their ages were at any time other than Sarah. Time and again we knew that Sarah gave birth at 90 years old. Poor Sarah, she had to go through that all the time. Oh Lord, why do you keep reminding the world and reminding the church and reminding everybody? But then God mentions that she's 127 years old when she dies. Why, Lord? Well, it is to give us some indication as to how great a woman she really was. You see, I also find it interesting that that we find nowhere in the Word of God to look to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an example of a godly woman, even though we all know she truly was, right? We all know that she was. But we're, but we're given a couple of statements pointing to Sarah. Who, while she wasn't perfect, nonetheless, she was such an example of godliness. 
and of being a godly woman. We're told in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, God says to the, the children of Israel, Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence you are hewn, into the hole of the pit whence you are digged. But then he says, Look unto Abraham your father and Sarah uh, that bore you. Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that, that bear you. In, in other words, look unto them as examples. He could have only said, look unto Abraham, because he goes on to say, For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. But he does not hesitate to remember Sarah as well. They together were examples of great faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, where, where Peter is, is speaking to women concerning how they are to, to live modestly and, 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 and in, in humility uh, as... as Believing women in their families and in their homes. Peter says uh, of that, he says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of, or of putting on of apparel. In other words, in, in, in you know, far beyond just a, a normal way. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, he says, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of of great price. For after this manner, he says, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Here she's being used as an example of a humble, modest, submissive woman. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid, with any amazement. So Sarah is quite an important person for us to learn about today. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Sarah today than we have all the time that we've been spending with Abraham. And we have spent a lot of time studying the life of Abraham, but there are those few things we need to point out about Sarah. For example, she, she had willingly followed her husband Abraham in his call that came from God. From Ur of the Chaldees, where he was called out of a pagan family and out of a pagan society, she, Sarah, had willingly followed him. She had willingly left her home. She left her family and and her friends, all that she had. She left to follow her husband. She had willingly traveled all about as Abraham sought to follow and to obey God. She had been steadfast right along with her husband all through the years, steadfast in, in following and believing God's promises despite the impossible odds. And man, there were some impossible odds, weren't there? Sarah was, was uh, uh, even at a young age, uh, after marrying Abraham, was barren. She couldn't bear children physically. She, she, she was going to carry that the rest of her life. Until about the age of 65, when Abraham, at the age of 75, receives a promise from God that he was going to be a father of many nations. And that he would be a father through Sarah to bring forth a promised son. Impossible. Because then years pass on until she's 90 years old. 25 years later. And the one who had been barren and who had entered into non-childbearing years 
would have now a son. God, being the God of the impossible, Sarah experienced those things. She was called a princess by God. That's her name, Sarah. It means princess. And she's listed in the great hall of faith as one of the great believers in God. In Hebrews 11, verse 11, it says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. She believed God just like Abraham believed God. That's quite a testimony. So when we get to our text here in chapter 23, and when we come to that, that part that says that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was away from her when she died. It means that he came to have a specific time of mourning and weeping for her. We've all gone through that, or at least in some, in some ways directly, sometimes indirectly, but we've all gone through that time where someone in our life has passed away, and we have entered into that time where we mourn. The loss of a person. Literally, when it says that Abraham came to mourn her, it literally means that he said himself deliberately to all the functions of a mourner. When someone in our congregation passes away, when, when, when someone, uh, when we have families that, that lose a loved one and they've asked us to, to, to do the the arrangements and the funeral services and all, uh, we oftentimes ask, would you like for us to go and help you with the arrangements? Because we understand how difficult it is. You've just entered into this, this time of, of mourning. This is a part of that. We, we would want to stand with you if you want us to. Help out in any way. Because all loss hurts. It's painful. We set ourselves deliberately to all the functions of a mourner, of one who grieves. But consider this about Abraham at this point, because Abraham certainly wasn't afraid to mourn. Well, some people seem like they don't want to be seen by anybody, you know, shedding a tear or, or, or weeping in any way. Abraham wasn't too proud to mourn for his closest loved one. None of us should be. He didn't sorrow as those who are without hope. Uh, that, that's something that Paul taught us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he's speaking to, a, to the church there in Thessalonica. And he's, and he's letting them know, you know, the Lord is coming and people are saying, you know, the Lord's coming soon, but you're worried about the, your loved ones that passed away who are in Christ. You're worried about them. Don't worry about them. Because he says in verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, speaking of the dead. He says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Don't sorrow like those who don't have any hope because they don't know what's beyond the grave. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them that also would sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. That's the hope we have. Death isn't final, folks. Death especially is not final for a person who believes in Jesus Christ and dies in Christ. There is hope. Abraham sorrowed, yes. 
but was not overcome with sorrow as those without hope. Uh, Abraham grieved. Yes, he did. But he was not overwhelmed with grief as those who are crushed and defeated and demoralized and devastated by the death of a loved one. He knew that Sarah had followed the counsel of the Lord throughout her life. He knew where Sarah was. And therefore the Lord had taken her to glory. That's actually a psalm. Psalm 73 verse 24 says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. If we will humble ourselves to the counsel of God through His Word and through His Spirit, if we humble ourselves to listen to Him, to, to allow Him to be the Lord of our lives and the Master of our lives as we take counsel from Him when it is our time, then He will receive us to glory. Do you see how precious that is? There is hope for the believer in Jesus Christ. There is hope for us. And even in Abraham's time, And this is one, one reason why I, I think, I thought for just a moment that statement that Jesus had made in, in, the, in, in John's gospel, where he said, before Abraham was, I am, that even Abraham understood that there was life beyond this one. So his tears were not shed in vain, as some who say today that those who weep in this life are without faith. I, I can't even figure that thinking out myself. And I'll tell you why. Because in Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist says, Thou tellest my wanderings, but then he says, Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. The psalmist said, Lord, I know that you see every tear that I shed, every tear that I cry, every tear that falls from my face, and yet you know every tear and you've kept every tear for me and for everyone that knows you and loves you, and and you've kept them in a bottle. I've mentioned this before, but we used to sing a song years ago that said, tears are a language that God understands. Tears are a language that God understands. Tears are those things that that show us this this emotion that, that God gave us for one another. I think of Charlie Brown, the great theologian, who in the Peanuts cartoon would always say, Good grief! Did you know that good grief is an oxymoron? A statement that has contradiction in it. Good and grief. Usually we say that well, something's good or something's grieving. You know, it's, it's not good. It's, when you grieve, you're not, it's not a good thing. But there's, you know, so good grief is an oxymoron. It's just as much as, as uh, jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron. Well, right, jumbo shrimp. How about a double oxymoron? Fresh frozen jumbo shrimp. That's a double oxymoron there, is it? Listen. Good grief. 
You know, they've had studies done about grieving and the importance of grieving after, after the loss of someone or after some kind of a tragedy. You know, if we don't grieve, if we try to bottle it up, we do more damage to ourselves. So what Charlie Brown said is right. It's good grief. Good grief. It's good to grieve. Because one thing that we will always have of the person that we love, that we've lost, is the memories of their life with us. I'm always reminding people at funerals, listen, God has given you some tremendous blessings of a person to remember them in love and in life. Not everything was perfect, not everything was right, but everything was in God's hands. So when we look now at Abraham after this death, we see that Abraham indeed was a, was a man prepared for life. And he was prepared for death so that he could be prepared for life. Do you see life that way, folks? There's life and death and life. Scriptures teach that. There's physical death. Certainly we've all had to experience that. But the Bible teaches that there can be a spiritual death as well. Go beyond that even to a greater death, which is eternal death. That's called the second death in the book of Revelation. Which, by the way, we're studying on Wednesday nights, and that's my commercial. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, there is also life beyond the grave. The life that Jesus promised. The life that the apostles spoke of. As Paul did when he said, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that he's risen from the dead, then shall you be saved. As as God had been pointing out earlier about not knowing what it means to be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the punishment of sin. Saved from death. Eternal death. Through Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead. You see. His death was not in vain. So Abraham was prepared for life and for death. To be prepared for life. Consider it in the way that Abraham dealt with the people <clears throat> that uh, he was with there in uh, Mamre or, or in Hebron, in, in that particular part of the land of Canaan. Look at verses 3 and 4. We've got to move on here. Abraham stood up from before his dead, it says, and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, uh, that, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. How interesting that a man that is so wealthy has no property of his own. Do you remember that? Abraham didn't really have any property. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was told to leave where he did have some property, evidently. And, and, and he was told to leave and to go to a place that he had never been. And he had to go by faith. And so he trusted the Lord. And the Lord brought him to the land of Canaan. And, and yet he never really had a place of his own. There were people there already. You remember Abimelech had to give him some, uh, some, some property or at least a, a, a place that he could stay down in Beersheba before he goes up to Mount Moriah. But now they've moved up again, up toward, uh, toward what is today Jerusalem and in that area of, of Hebron. 
And he has to ask for a burial place for his wife. So the opening phrase of verse 3 then sets the theme for the remaining verses of chapter 23. Because it says that Abraham stood up from before his dead and he spoke. This makes very clear pictures of, of what we go through sometimes when, when a person in our family dies. We go to a memorial service or we go to a funeral service or we go just, just to a graveside service. Someone stands up before his dead and speaks. A memorial, a funeral, or a graveside service for a believer, though, is essentially a rare and a powerful opportunity to share a testimony about Jesus Christ. It is a time to stand up before a dear saint and to speak about eternal issues, because it is what the departed believer would want from us. Don't speak so much about me, speak about Jesus. Speak about the one who died for us and rose again from the dead so that we can have eternal life as well. Because there are a lot of people in our funeral services today that are really don't, they don't really want to be there. Because they have to deal with something they don't care to think about, which is death. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to deal with it. But they'll come because they have a heart for the people that, you know, the family that lost someone. So they go and they sit there and they sit and they look so uncomfortable, you know, because they they have to deal with death, you know. You know, Christians, we don't have to worry about death. Why? Because we don't fear death. Jesus conquered death for us. But there are those people there. That's why we have to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we have to let them know, listen, there is hope beyond the grave. This person who is here, who believed in God and who believed in Christ, that person is with God today. That's the hope they want you to know about. They are sitting there itching, just waiting for somebody to say amen so that they go out the door. They're uncomfortable because they only think about things in this life, but not the life to come. So let's look at this service that we're attending with Abraham for Sarah. Let's look at a couple of points in this dialogue between Abraham and the sons of Heth, who, by the way, are the people known as the Hittites. Abraham mentioned that he was, he was a foreigner or a pilgrim or a sojourner and a stranger. He tells them this. But in, in, fact, in, in effect, what he's saying to them is, I'm God's foreigner. I am God's pilgrim, God's sojourner, and God's stranger. I, I, I have nothing of my own, you know, but I'm here to ask you for a place to bury my, my loved one. It's been pointed out early on in our study of Abraham what he was looking for in his journeying with God. It was for a city. Hebrews 11 verse 10. He looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't going to find it on this earth, but in the life to come. So at the death of a believer, we are able to share a testimony about the temporary nature of this life and our certain hope in the next. And we can actually understand that from Abraham's conversation here with these people because he notice that Abraham says in verse 2 that I may bury my dead out of my sight. That I may bury my dead out of my sight. And he repeats this in verse 8. And this phrase has spiritual implications to it. Why? Because Abraham can't see Sarah again in this life. She will be out of his sight, but only temporarily. And we know that it is only temporarily in the heart of of Abraham because in chapter 22, Abraham had come to the understanding that there would be a resurrection from the dead. God had commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah 
And when he goes with those two young men and, and, and Isaac to Mount Moriah, as they get off their, their donkeys and, and, and Abraham puts the wood upon Isaac and they, they make their way up to Mount Moriah, the two young men that were with him, he told them, we will be back to you. We will come back to you together. But what did he know he had to do? He had to sacrifice Isaac. What does that tell you? That if God is able to raise a person from death, He can raise us from death as well. Abraham, on his way to offer his only son, reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. God prevented the actual sacrifice of Isaac, substituting a ram that was nearby, that ram that was caught in the thicket. Abraham told Isaac that God would provide himself a lamb. And so on Moriah, he provided not a lamb, but a ram, of course. Why? Because there's only one lamb of God. But perhaps in contemplating this, think about it. Abraham came to understand that on some future day on the same mountain, God would not spare his own son. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that he would raise Jesus the Messiah from the dead. And aren't you glad that he did? At any rate, the resurrection of Jesus is a testimony to proclaim at the death of a believer. So Abraham was quite prepared for death. But that doesn't mean that we don't mourn. When we know that someone is in a terminal condition, you know, we, we're ready for it, but then we're not. Have you experienced I have experienced that in almost all of my family. A terminal condition, I'm ready for it, but I still mourn when they pass. Abraham was prepared. But we have to be prepared and be prudent as well. Prudent for the future. And Abraham was prudent with this purchase that has to be made. A purchase of a grave. In verses 5-11 through 11 it says that the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our uh, sepulchres, bury thy dead. In other words, whatever grave you choose, bury your dead there. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, you haven't heard the rest. It says, none of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and he bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place amongst you. In other words, he's got the grave that I want, and I'll pay any price for it. And so it says that... Uh, Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee, and the presence of thy son, or the sons of my people give, it, give I thee, thee, bury thy dead. Now, that all sounds pretty good, but you have to understand the culture. We'll get to that in a moment. 
But as you know, Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, where he had family that was still there during this time. And, and, he, and he could have found a burial place for Sarah there, but he didn't go back. Abraham didn't go back to Ur of the Chaldees to bury Sarah. Sarah had family there, I'm sure, as well. He didn't go back to Ur of the Chaldees. Why? Because God called him out of there. And that needs to be something that we think about when it comes to our salvation. Because if we came to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we received him and accepted the truth of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and raising, uh, rising again from the dead, one thing is for sure, he has called us out of the world. Is this not what the, t- the scriptures teach us? We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called out of the world into his kingdom. Folks, we don't go back, do we? We don't really even want to go back. Abraham didn't want to go back to Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan in Ur of the Chaldees. God told him to separate from his family and his land, and so he did. He really wanted to bury Sarah in the land of Canaan because the land of Canaan was the land of promise. You see, we as as Christians, we as believers in Jesus Christ, need to always have eternity in our uh, in our vision, eternity in our mindset, eternity in our in our thinking. And Abraham did, not only for himself, but even for Sarah. So we consider what is going on here with these Hittites. And please understand that the Hittites were not going to give Abraham the land for nothing. It wasn't free. I mean, you might have come to that conclusion as you read this, but that that isn't the way that they did business back then. You see, this was a common practice of negotiating or bargaining with each other. They were bargainers. Ephron is is doing that with Abraham here. Y'all know a little bit about bargaining if you go to Juarez, right? Yeah. There's a lot of bartering that goes on. Some of you have master's degrees in bargaining. Some of you wish you had. So, it's interesting how we see a little bit of that here. Notice verse 12. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. Abraham was very courteous. Abraham was a, was, was a gentleman. He was a, you know, he was a good witness for his God all the time. And he spoke unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. So the negotiations are beginning, you see. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Sounds good, doesn't it? He says, Bury therefore thy dad. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron. But stop there for just a moment. Abraham doesn't bargain. Look at what it says. Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, the witnesses, 400 shekels of silver, current money with, that, with, with a merchant, an exorbitant amount. Think about those fake watches you want to buy in Wattis. And you say, how much is that watch? Because it's not a real one. You know that. He said, well, that's, you know, they give you a price and you go, whoa, that's way too much. No, I don't want that. I'll give you this much. So the price that was here, you give them this price. Oh, no, that's not not enough. How about here? 
Well, how about here? Well, how about this much? Well, how about this much? You see how that works? said, so Ephraim thought that we were just going to go into this negotiation just like we always do. But Abraham does something different. Abraham, t- Abraham tells Ephraim that he wants to pay, so now the barter, you would think in, Ab- in Ephraim's mind, begins. He tells Abraham the land is worth 100 shekels, which it really wasn't. That was a very high price. It was a starting point for Ephraim, expecting for Abraham to come with a lower price, and they would go back and forth until they settle. Abraham doesn't barter. He was told 400 shekels, and that was what he was willing to pay for this piece of land. Why? Because he didn't want anybody else to have it. This was a piece of land that was away and apart from everything else. Why? Because we need to be away and apart from everything in this world. It was just the right place. And he had plans for that cave as well. There was all kinds of family that needed to go there and it was just the right size. As Christians, when we do business with people, we should be fair, we should be courteous, we, we should be respectful, and we should, think, we should do things prudently. Abraham certainly did. What, it is, what does it mean to be prudent? Well, a simple definition of the word prudent would be this. Showing careful, carefulness and foresight, avoiding rashness. Showing carefulness and foresight. Being very careful about whatever it is that you're going to say and whatever it is you're going to do. Showing foresight, looking at the future, and avoiding rash decisions. Abraham is a good example of being prudent. You can find a lot of scriptures, in the, in the, especially in the book of Proverbs, where it says in Proverbs 13, for example, 16, uh, Every prudent man dealeth with knowledge, but a fool layeth open his folly. Proverbs 14, 8, that says the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. You notice the contrast between foolishness and, and prudence? Uh, Proverbs 14, verse 15, the simple believe every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. Really looks deep at the situation. In Proverbs 14, verse 18, it says the simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. There's a blessing in being prudent. And already we've learned that Abraham had this strong testimony among his neighbors. They called him a prince. Uh, He was courteous and he showed appreciation. Uh, he, He bore a testimony of tact. He, he was tactful with the world. You remember what Jesus said one time? He said, we need to be wise as servants and gentlemen as doves. <laughs> he asked the city officials to intercede in securing a particular piece of land, the cave of Machpelah. He also bore a testimony for being fair and just in his business transactions, for he sought to buy land to possess it without any earthly entanglements. Didn't want anybody to say, well, you know, we've got you on a little bit of, you know, some of the fine print. No, there's no fine print here. I'm paying the full price for this. This is what I know I have to get, what I need to buy. So notice in verse 17, it goes on to say, The field of Ephraim, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure unto Abraham for possession in the presence of the children of Heth. There was going to be no question in the world that this cave that he wanted, he purchased the full price for. He was going to get everything on it. <clears throat> he says, Before all that went into the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. The same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. It's said twice because there's some significance to the, to the names that are given. And then in verse 20 it says, The field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons 
of Heth. So there in the cave of Machpelah, Sarah was buried. The only parcel of land Abraham owned, and yet by faith, he believed that God would give the land to his descendants one day. He wasn't concerned about himself. Do you remember how Lot really wanted the, the land east of the, the valley and the, it ended up where Sodom and Gomorrah was? And it was Abraham who was the one who said, You choose Lot. I, I'll go wherever God wants me to go. But Lot looked and he saw the green and he saw the fertileness and he saw the city and that's where he went. Abraham's not looking for a city here. He was looking for a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was eternally minded. Even at the death of Sarah, he's eternally minded. He wants the cave of Machpelah. We're going to find out what that means in just a moment. Also, we will see as we go through Genesis that not only Sarah is buried in the cave of Machpelah, but so is Abraham. So is his son Isaac. So is Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Later on, Jacob will bury his wife, Leah, there, and Joseph will bury his father, Jacob, there. But as we come here to the close of our study today, consider the cave of Machpelah. The word Machpelah literally means double doors. Double doors. A way in and a way out. What's man's thinking today about death? Light goes out. There's a way in, that's where it ends. Not with God. There's a way in, and there's a way out. You can think about it in that way, or, in other words, Sarah entered the cave of Machpelah physically dead, but she left the cave of Machpelah spiritually alive. You see, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's this life, isn't it? Every day, we can come this close to death. Every day. I've heard people say to me sometimes, I almost didn't make it here today. Some guy ran me off the road. By God's grace, I'm here. Every day we're that close. But we as believers in Jesus Christ know that even if we are taken from this life, it's not over. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. By the way, we don't walk through the valley of death. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Anybody afraid of shadows? We shouldn't be. Shadows don't do anything to you. Whatever shadow I can cast on anybody, it's not going to hurt you. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That when it is time, we will enter into the kingdom prepared for us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, 
before he goes to the cross, before he is taken and beaten and, and nailed to a cross, before he dies on that cross, before he is buried and then three days later he rises from the dead, before all of that he tells his disciples this and he tells us this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, what is it for us to prepare for life, for death, and for life? We've been given the promise of eternal life. We've been given a promise of life beyond the grave. By Jesus Himself. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, We are confident, I say, and willing, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That was Paul's desire. I, I'm ready to leave this life because I want to be present with the Lord. I'll be absent from this body. The body could be in a box or it could be in a urn or whatever. But you know what? I'll be with the Lord. Going back to John for just a moment, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, when Jesus is speaking to the sisters of, uh, of Lazarus, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he has to say to, the, to, to, to one of them, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Is that, is that not a promise that, that requires us to trust the Lord for eternal life? Though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whoso liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asks the crucial question that we must ask everyone. Don't you, do you not believe this? Believeth thou this? Don't you believe this? Do you believe this? I hope you do. Because Jesus doesn't lie to us. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if Jesus is going to prepare a place for you, he is prepared a place for you so that you in, prepar in, in preparing for that day you can rest assured that he's done what he needed to do for you as well he died on the cross he was buried and three days he rose again he is victorious over death and if you believe in him you're victorious over death as well and here's the point. The sting of death was removed by Jesus and thus death has no power over those who believe. Will we die in this life? Well, unless the rapture happens first, yeah, well, some of us may die. But if we die in Christ, we shall live with Him. So it's just a doorway. It's machpelah. It's a doorway we're passing through to enter into eternal life with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think about these words of, of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 22. He says, and, and consider this reason. I, I really believe Paul to be one of the, probably the, one of the top three or four uh, greatest philosophers. Look at his reasoning here. Of course, this was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he says, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead... Then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be, that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? 
And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Ooh, the sin problem remains if there's no resurrection. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Now he says something that applies to that funeral service with all those people that are all itchy and wanting to get out. You know what he says? He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If, we, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if only in what we see and what we experience in this life here, we are men, of all men, most miserable. Because then we think all that happens is we live and we die and that's it. But notice what he goes on to say. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Praise the Lord. So this is what we need to understand about Sarah's death. Abraham did not approach it hopelessly. Why? Because first of all, Sarah died in the place of blessing. Sarah died in the place of blessing. What was the place of blessing? The land of Canaan. Why? Because Canaan means blessing. Sarah died in the place of fellowship. She died in Hebron. What does Hebron mean? Fellowship. She had great fellowship for many, many years with Abraham, but she had a, great, a greater fellowship with her God. And now she was having that fellowship for eternity with God. And then she was buried in Machpelah, the place of the double doors. She entered having died physically, but passed into glory spiritually alive. So here it is. Sarah died in faith. She died in fellowship. And she would eventually rise free from the bondage of sin and death. Can you remember this when you share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Faith, fellowship, freedom. Faith, fellowship, freedom. That even if we die in this life, we are free from the bondage of sin and death and we'll we'll spend our eternity with the God who created us and now we will be as he is. More in his likeness then than we are now. For we shall see him as he is, John says. And I think we can better understand now this statement of the psalmist in Psalm 116 verse 15. I use it a lot when we do... uh, uh, Celebrations of life that we like to call them. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now we can understand that better. Because death doesn't win. Christ is victorious for us. So in this chapter, preparation and prudence are Abraham's trust in the permanence of God's salvation. The salvation that God gives us through Jesus Christ is a permanent salvation. 
It isn't like the temporary life that we live on this earth. It is permanent. You are entering into eternity. Eternal life. Everlasting life. Forever. With Christ. Amen. Let's pray.